Elhamdülillah nehmeduhu ve nestaeinuhu ve nestağfiruh ve na'udhu billahi min şururi enfusina ve seyyiati a'malina men yehdihillahu fela mudillalah ve men yudlil fela hadiyalah ve eşhedü en la ilahe illallah vahdehu la şerikalah ve eşhedü enne muhammeden abduhu ve resuluhu amma ba'd Today then, we start with the next narration where Al-Imam Al-Bukhari Rahimahullah Ta'ala says قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا قُتَيْبَةِ ابْنُ سَعِيدِ عَنْ مَالِكِ عَنَ بِالزِّنَادِ عَنِ الْأَعْرَجِ عَنَ بِهُرَيْرَةِ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالَ يَتَعَاقَبُونَ فِيكُمْ مَلَائِكَةٌ بِاللَّيْلِ وَمَلَائِكَةٌ بِالنَّهَارِ وَيَجْتَمِعُونَ فِي صَلَاةِ الْعَصْرِ وَصَلَاةِ الْفَجْرِ ثُمَّ يَعْرُجُ الَّذِينَ بَاتُوا فِيكُمْ فَيَسْأَلُهُمْ وَهُوَ أَعْلَمُ كَيْفَ تَرَكْتُمْ عِبَادِي فَيَقُولُونَ تركناهم وهم يصلون وأتيناهم وهم يصلون. In this hadith of Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه, he mentions that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said that there are angels. During the night and angels during the day that alternate with you. There are angels that alternate with you, some for the day and then some for the night. And they meet up, they overlap at the time of Asr and the time of Fajr. So the ones who were with you overnight from Asr all the way overnight till Fajr, they then ascend and go. And the others then come to be with you from Fajr till Asr. So when that overlap occurs, فَيَسْأَلُهُمْ Then Allah asks them when the angels go back, the ones who have just left now and gone and others have taken over, Allah asks them, and He already knows and is the most knowledgeable, كَيْفَ تَرَكْتُمْ عِبَادِي In what state did you leave my servants? So they say, we left them praying. They were praying when we left them. And when we came to them, they were Praying. This hadith, you will be familiar with it. And the reason you'll be familiar with it is because we already came across this hadith in a previous chapter. This hadith that mentioned how there are angels upon you or with you throughout the day. There are angels that are with you from Fajr till Asr. 
Then at the time of Asr, they depart and others come to be with you from Asr all the way till Fajr. So the overlap occurs at the time of Fajr and the time of Asr. When the angels, they go up, then Allah asks them, how did you leave my servant in what state? So they say, we left him and he was praying. And we went to him and he was praying. Because the ones who come at the time of Asr, they come to him and he is in prayer. And when they leave him, he's in the, which prayer? Fajr prayer. The others who come to him at Fajr prayer come to him and he's praying. And when they leave him, he's praying his Asr. هذا الحديث سبق الكلام عليه في باب العلو. This hadith, we already spoke about it in the chapter regarding the highness of Allah. How was this hadith a proof regarding the highness of Allah, that Allah is above? This hadith was mentioned in that chapter. Why was it mentioned in that chapter? Where is the evidence in the hadith about Allah being above and the most high? Because it mentions that the angels ascend to Allah. When that overlap occurs, the ones leaving, Ya'ruj, they go up and they ascend to Allah. And then Allah asks them, إِشَارَةً إِلَىٰ أَنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَ يُكَلِّمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ Here though in this particular chapter we're looking at the issue of the kalam of Allah. And so from that angle you can see that here Allah speaks to the angels and asks them how did you leave my servant? And this is what they mean when they say Al-Imam Al-Bukhari you know, you get the figures. How many hadith are there in Sahih al-Bukhari? And you get the figures, they give you a figure, and then they'll give you another figure, bila tikrar. There is a figure, just an absolute figure of how many hadith there are in al-Bukhari. But some of these hadith, as you can see, are repeats. They've been mentioned in other sections of the book and the repeat won't necessarily just be on the matan, it will be with the isnad, etc. But nevertheless, you have repeats. So sometimes when you look at the figures, how many hadith are there in Sahih al-Bukhari? You'll get a figure. But then they'll also give you another figure and in brackets or whatever they'll say, without the repeats. How many hadith are there? So here you can see it is an example of a repeat. Another point the scholars make about these repeats is that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari may not necessarily even narrate the full hadith. In certain chapters he may only narrate the first half. Because the point he wants to make in that chapter is in the first half of the hadith. So he will cut 
and just put that section of the hadith in that chapter. So you may have examples of that occurring too. But here it's an example of a hadith that was mentioned previously in another chapter for a different point of evidence. In this chapter for a different point of evidence. In that chapter it was about the highness of Allah. In this chapter it's about the speech of Allah. وَسَبَقَ الْكَلَامُ Then after that, the next narration, Al-Imam Al-Bukhari says, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدِ بْنُ بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا غُنْدَرِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا شُعْبَةِ عَنْ وَاصِلِ عَنْ الْمَعْرُورِ قَالَ سَمِعْتُ أَبَا ذَرِ عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال أتاني جبريل فبشرني أنه من مات لا يشرك بالله شيئا دخل الجنة قلت وإن سرق وإن زنى قال وإن سرق وإن زنى In this hadith, Al-Ma'roor says that he heard from Abu Dhar, from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who said that Jibreel came to me and gave me glad tidings. Jibreel came to me and gave me glad tidings that the one who dies not committing any shirk with Allah, will enter paradise. I said, even if he steals and fornicates, he said, even if he steals or fornicates, where is the point of evidence in this narration? Remember, we are in the chapter talking about Kalamullah. The speech of Allah, where in that hadith is an evidence regarding the speech of Allah. Hadith just says that Jibreel came to the Prophet ﷺ and told him, gave him glad tidings that whoever dies without committing any shirk will enter paradise. Where is the evidence regarding the speech of Allah? This is what they refer to as the fiqh of Imam al-Bukhari. That sometimes you'll see a hadith in a particular chapter and it's not obvious why that hadith is in that chapter. It is not obvious where the point of evidence is. Why Imam al-Bukhari has picked this hadith here? Where has he found evidence in that hadith proving the issue of the speech of Allah. So where is it? Jibreel came to me and gave me glad tidings. Where is the proof of the speech of Allah? How do you know Jibreel got this from Allah? It doesn't say in the hadith that Jibreel got this from Allah. It just says Jibreel came and gave the glad tidings to the Prophet. Whoever doesn't commit shirk at all will enter paradise. How can you tell me that this 
actually occurred previously where Allah told Jibreel that and then he came and said that. Absolutely. This is a matter of revelation. Jibreel wouldn't come and give the ruling that whoever does this or that will go to paradise. That ruling has to come from Allah. So this information here has come from without doubt Allah. And Jibreel gets that information from Allah. And Jibreel gets that because Allah tells him, speaks to Jibreel. Jibreel Bashara al-Rasul wal Bashara hadhihi la taqa' min Jibreel min tilqa'i nafsi This type of glad tidings cannot come from Jibreel himself. He cannot make that ruling. فَلَا بُدَّ أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَخْبَرَهُ بِذَلِكَ So it must be the case that Allah informed him of that. فَبَشَّرَ جِبْرِيلَ and then after Allah told Jibreel, Jibreel then came and gave those glad tidings to the Prophet There is a side point here the Shaykh he mentions that when this glad tidings came, مَنْ مَاتَ لَا يُشْرِكُ بِاللَّهِ شَيْءًا that whomsoever dies not committing any shirk with Allah will enter paradise. Obviously, there's a prerequisite default which is understood. Whomsoever upon iman doesn't commit any shirk will enter paradise, obviously. But then, here the scholars have said, Istadalla bihi man some of the scholars therefore used this hadith as one of the evidences that a person who doesn't pray isn't deemed a kafir, isn't deemed a disbeliever. Somebody who doesn't pray, is he Muslim or not? He doesn't pray. Difference of opinion between the scholars. It depends on the situation. A person who rejects the obligation of praying, a person who rejects the obligation of praying, then that person without a doubt is kafir. Man jahada wujub salah fahuwa kafir. There is no doubt, kafir, the one who rejects the obligation of prayer. But the one who accepts the obligation of praying, but doesn't pray out of laziness, out of laziness, he doesn't pray. Then that individual is he Muslim or not? That's the debate amongst the scholars. Some scholars will say the one who doesn't pray out of laziness, he believes you have to pray, but he doesn't bother out of laziness. Lazy, doesn't pray. Kafir. Because the Prophet said, Al-Ahdu alladhi baynana wa baynahum as-salah. Faman tarakaha faqad kafir. 
وفي رواية فقد أشرك that the al-ahad the covenant the difference the barrier that which differentiates us to them muslims to non-muslims is the prayer so whomsoever abandons it has committed kufr the hadith says or shirk as the hadith says in another version so that seems to be very clear the one who abandons the prayer kafir out of laziness but some scholars they say no there are evidences in the in the Quran and Sunnah that indicate a person who leaves the prayer takasulan wa tahawulan is not a kafir the one who leaves it out of laziness still a believer upon iman accepts it all but lazy he's a believer still this hadith is one of the evidences they use because it says inna tarika salah laysa bimushrik a person who abandons the prayer from laziness but he's upon iman yani believes and accepts everything doesn't commit any shirk so now according to this narration the bottom line is he is not committing any shirk he may well be committing other sins like even the narration at the end mentions stealing fornicating even stealing fornicating major sins but can be forgiven in the end leaving the prayer absolute from the huge sins but he's not committed shirk not associated partners alongside allah so at the end of the day they say he still comes under this narration he's not committed any shirk he's done a huge sin of abandoning the prayer huge sin but he's not committed shirk therefore he is still a believer and eventually will enter paradise that is what may be said however as shaykh al-athameen says we can clarify that though we can highlight and explain this issue further so that you would understand this reasoning is not legitimate and that the one who abandons the prayer out of laziness is a kafir he says the first answer we can give or reply we can give أَنَّنَا لَا نُسَلِّمْ أَنَّ تَارِكَ الصَّلَةِ لَيْسَ بِمُشْرِكِ Firstly, we don't accept that the person who abandons the prayer hasn't committed shirk. Because the other side was saying, bottom line is he's done sins, he's done a huge sin of abandoning the prayer, but he's not committed any Shirk is not associating partners to Allah. The first answer to that is, we don't accept that. He is committing shirk in abandoning the prayer. How? Because of that hadith, where the Prophet ﷺ said, بَيْنَ الرَّجُلِ وَبَيْنَ shirk, Or another version of this hadith, بَيْنَ الرَّجُلِ وَبَيْنَ shirk, وَالْكُفْرِ تَرْكُ الصَّلَاةِ Between the barrier holding the two sides apart, a man and shirk and kufr, 
Shirk and kufr on one side, the person on the other side. What's the barrier keeping them away from being in shirk and kufr? The hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in Sahih Muslim. The barrier is the abandonment of the prayer. Meaning if you abandon the prayer, that barrier falls and the man is now within the realms of kufr and shirk. So, firstly the shaykh says, we don't accept this argument that a person who abandons the prayer hasn't committed shirk though. The narration is telling you, the barrier keeping you safe from shirk is prayer. When you abandon the prayer, that barrier is gone. You are now in the realms of kufr and shirk. Hadith, that's a hadith. So, the first argument, they say we don't accept that. He has committed shirk if he abandons the prayer. Secondly, أَنَّنَا سَلَّمْنَا أَنَّ تَرْكَ الصَّلَةِ لَيْسَ بِشِرْكِ He says, okay, let's say for the sake of the argument, abandoning the prayer isn't shirk. Let's go with that for the sake of the argument. وَلَكِنْ هَذَا عَامُ وَحَدِيثُ وَأَدِلَّةُ كُثْرِ تَارِكِ الصَّلَةِ خَاصَةِ he says, let's say for the sake of the argument that abandoning the prayer is not considered shirk. Still, still he says, this hadith right now we've just mentioned, the hadith of the chapter, Jibreel came, came and gave the glad tidings that the one who does not commit shirk will enter paradise. That is a very open and general narration. The one who does not commit shirk will enter paradise. A very general narration. The narrations about the one who abandons the prayer are very specific to the topic of prayer and abandonment of the prayer and the ruling upon the one who abandons the prayer. They are very pinpointed upon that topic of prayer and abandonment of prayer and the ruling of the one who abandons the prayer. I.e. they are specific narrations about the one abandoning the prayer and that being kufr etc. And all of the other narrations about the abandonment of the prayer, they are specific unto that topic. Whereas this narration isn't specific to anything, it is a general narration. Whomsoever doesn't commit shirk will enter paradise. General broad narration. The principle is specific narrations. They have to be put together into the context of the general narrations and then those specifics are given their specific ruling. You have a general narration and you have something very specific. You put it together, the general narration applies but in the specific context, that specific item has its ruling. So now you can say, okay, yes, generally, generally, Whomsoever doesn't commit shirk enters paradise. 
But very specifically on the topic of prayer though, whoever abandons the prayer because of all of these narrations and evidences, he won't enter paradise either. He is considered a kafir. Even if we say that act isn't shirk. Because there are specific narrations about the one abandoning the prayer, about the covenant between us and them being the prayer, the abandonment of the prayer, it's very specific. So therefore when you put the two together, and that is a principle generally, whenever you have something general, it must be into the context of that specific item. That specific item is going to get its ruling within the generality. So here, the prayer and abandonment of the prayer gets its specific ruling within the generality of the one who doesn't commit shirk enters paradise. Okay, but the one who abandons the prayer, that's very specific. He will not enter paradise either. He has committed kufr. He has abandoned the prayer and therefore abandoned the religion in that way. And there are many narrations about that, evidences about that, indicating it. Statements of the Sahaba on top as well. Statement of Umar ibn Khattab, the last thing that leaves a person of his religion is his prayer. Meaning once that's gone, your whole religion is gone. That's it. No Islam left. Kafir. The last thing that leaves a person is his prayer. You may stop doing all types of other obligations, sunnahs, etc. But the last thing... The last lifeline is that prayer. When the prayer goes, that's it. You have nothing left of your religion now. I.e. you are now a kafir. That's it. Gone. The very last thing holding you on to the prayer was your prayer. Or holding you on to the religion was your prayer. When that goes, then it's all gone. So then the sheikh says, نَقُولْ لَا نُسَلِّمْ بِأَنَّ تَارِكَ الصَّلَةِ in conclusion, he says, anyway, we do not accept that a person who leaves the prayer, abandons the prayer, isn't a mushrik. He is. The second argument was only for the sake of the argument. If we say for the sake of the argument it's not shirk, then the general is specified anyway. And that is, as the scholars say, one of the methods of legitimate clarification or debate when explaining an affair. It is a legitimate means of explaining an affair to say, for the sake of the argument, if what you're saying is as it is, then you're still wrong because of X, Y, and Z. Even though you don't even accept what his basis is, you can do that and you can say, for the sake of the argument, if what you're saying is correct and I agree with it, then you are still not going to be right in what you're saying because of X, Y, and Z. Even upon your basis, X, Y, and Z still refutes you. You can do that. And scholars have mentioned that is legitimate to do. Just to clarify to that person even more, that even what you're saying, if we accept it, you're still wrong. So that is what was mentioned there. So the sheikh says, we don't accept the person who abandons the prayer is not a mushrik. We say he is a mushrik. وَكَثِيرٌ مِّنَ الشِّرْكِ لَا يَقَعُ ظَاهِرًا بَلْ بَاطِنًا Much of shirk that occurs 
doesn't occur openly, but it occurs concealed in a manner that is concealed. وَالشِّرْكْ لَيْسَ خَاصًا بِأَنْ يَسْجُدَ الْإِنسَانِ لِسْصَنَمْ Shirk isn't just that a person prostrates to idols. أو يعتقد بأن مع الله مدبرا وخالقا Shirk isn't just that a person believes there is another God with Allah. That there is another creator or provider or controller of the affairs along with Allah. بل and this is an important principle the scholars use on this. بَلْ إِذَا اتَّبَعَ الْإِنسَانُ هَوَاهُ فِيمَا يُخْرِجُهُ مِنَ الْإِسْلَامِ فَهَذَا شِرْكِ If a person follows his desires in that which exits him from Islam, ends up exiting him from Islam, these desires that he follows, then that is deemed as shirk. That is deemed as shirk. If a person follows his desires such that it exits him from Islam now, then that act of his is shirk. Why? Because that is what is mentioned in the Quran. Scholars use the ayah, Al-Jathiyah 23. Have you seen the one who takes his desires as his deity? Have you seen the one who takes his desires as his deity that he worships and follows? وَأَظَلَّهُ اللَّهُ عَلَىٰ عِلْمٍ وَخَتَمَ عَلَىٰ سَمْعِهِ وَقَلْبِهِ وَجَعَلَ عَلَىٰ بَصَرِهِ غِشَاوَةٍ And then it mentions how Allah has misguided that person upon knowledge and sealed his hearing and heart and placed a covering upon his eyesight. But the point being, Allah tells us this individual, he follows his desires as his God, as his deity, worships his desires such that they exit him from Islam. So that is therefore considered shirk. It is as though his desires are the deity that he's worshipping. And worshipping another deity besides Allah is shirk. Hence the scholars they say, any sin that you commit, some scholars they mention this point, any sin that you commit, it is a level of shirk that you have committed. Because every sin you commit, you have done it by following your desires. And the ayah of the Quran says, following desires, desires are a form of deity that you are following. Hence, some of the scholars say, any sin you commit, it is a degree of shirk. Of course, we know there is. Minor shirk and major shirk, therefore committing a sin doesn't mean now upon this what we've just said, it is a degree of shirk and therefore you are now a mushrik kafir out of Islam. Shirk is of different levels. Minor shirk, major shirk. So of that small degree to some degree of that minor shirk, then you are labeled with that when committing sins according to some scholars. Based upon that, understanding 
The scholars, they say, on the day of judgment, whomsoever has committed sins that outweigh his good deeds, then he will certainly be punished in the hellfire because those sins that he's committed are a form of shirk. And Allah has told us, Inna Allah la yaghfir an So following that logic, that person must be punished on the day of judgment first. Meaning when we say تحت المشيئة تحت المشيئة Somebody is under the will of Allah on that day They say yes But if he's committed these types of sins He's under the will of Allah But he will experience a degree of punishment He will experience a degree of punishment But he's under the will of Allah He may be removed after a while whenever etc But he will experience a degree of punishment Because every sin is a type of shirk and every shirk cannot be forgiven without repentance. Others, of course, they do not follow in that step of clarification. And so they say sins can be forgiven and a person would be entered into paradise without any prior punishment uh, because they do not follow in this step of saying every sin is an act of shirk and therefore every act of shirk must be punished. But nevertheless, the point here is that your desires are a form of deity that you are worshipping. And therefore, when you follow your desires, you are committing shirk. A person who abandons the prayer because of his desires that he's following, then that person has committed a type of shirk. And that is the point the Shaykh is making here. Then we have the other issue at the end. In fact, that, that is basically the issue we touched upon right now. If a person was to say now, in the last part of the narration it says, دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ وَإِنْ سَرَقَ وَإِنْ زَنَى That a person will enter paradise who doesn't commit shirk, even if he's stolen, he's done stealing, or he's done fornication. هَلْ يُعَاقَبْ عَلَى زِنَاهُ وَسَرِقَتِهِ That person though on the day of judgment, He's not committed shirk, so he's going to enter paradise. But, will he get some prior punishment in the hellfire for his stealing and his fornication and these types of sins first though? Will he get that punishment upon those sins first though? Or because he never committed shirk, paradise, that's it. That's the issue we just mentioned. According to some scholars then, fornicating, uh, stealing, these types of sins, all of them are following your Desires, desires are explained as being a form of deity that you're worshipping, therefore a degree of shirk. Therefore, according to those scholars, they'll say, he will be punished in the fire for these sins first, and then he'll enter paradise. Because entry into paradise, all of those narrations that you see, they are of two levels. The scholars, they say, entry into paradise is of two types. There are two degrees or two levels of entry into paradise. One is, of course, the direct entry into paradise. And the other is, after receiving some level of punishment in the fire, then 
entry into paradise. The point at the end of both of them is you have entry into paradise. One is directly without any punishment. The other is with a level of punishment for whatever else you did. And then entry into paradise. So now this hadith says whoever doesn't commit shirk will enter paradise. That doesn't negate the fact that the person may have a degree of punishment for other sins first. Entry into paradise is two types. These narrations do not necessitate direct entry without any other punishment. It, uh. Then what is that doing a ghalik then? If sins are, all sins are a form of shirk, then is there, there's nothing lesser than, than that. That is then, so in the ayah when it says, Inna allaha la yaghfiru an yusharaka bih, wa yaghfiru ma duna thalika liman yasha. Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk, but he forgives all else to whom he wills. If we're saying all sins are a form of shirk, therefore everything is punishable, then what is the duna dhalika other than shirk that Allah forgives? That is in reference directly to what we're talking about right now. Allah doesn't forgive that you commit shirk. That is in reference to major shirk and you will not be forgiven. You will be in the hellfire forever. The sins are in reference to minor shirk. You will be punished for them according to that logic and explanation. But you will be forgiven in the end because you will be put into paradise in the end. So there is a forgiveness for lesser than shirk. But there isn't a forgiveness for the shirk. They will remain in the hellfire forever. The others will eventually be forgiven and placed into paradise. So here then the shirk says, Will they then be punished or not then? Naam. إِذَا لَمْ يَقُمْ عَلَيْهِ الْحَدِّ فَإِنْ أُقِيمَ عَلَيْهِ الْحَدِّ فَهُوَ كَفَّارًا وَإِنْ لَمْ يُقَمْ عَلَيْهِ الْحَدِّ فَإِنَّهُ يُعَاقَبْ وَمَعَ ذَلِكَ هُوَ تَحْتَ الْمَشِيئَةِ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ غَفَرَ لَهُ وَإِنْ شَاءَ عَذَّبَهُ So the Sheikh says that with these types of sins like stealing, like fornication in particular that were mentioned in the narration. If a person is given his due punishment in this world, so chopping the hand for the one who steals, stoning or um, banishing a person who fornicates depending on the situation, if those types of rulings are implemented in this world, then in the afterlife, that sin of yours is now, it's done. You've received your punishment and your recompense upon that sin. You fornicated, you were stoned in this world, done. You will not be punished for that sin again in the afterlife. You stole, your hand was chopped now, done. You've received your punishment upon that you will not be punished upon it in the afterlife again. So if the punishment has been placed upon the person in this world, then they won't receive a punishment again in the afterlife. If they never receive their punishment in this world, then according to the clarification we mentioned before, to some scholars, 
that person will definitely be punished in the afterlife. But then afterwards they'll be placed into paradise. According to other scholars who don't follow it through in that same way, they say no, تحت المشيئة, absolutely, maybe Allah will just forgive them and they'll go to paradise. You have a difference between the scholars on that. Some, according to that logic as we followed through, upon that evidence, another ayat will say he must be punished first. Others will say not necessarily, they don't follow it through in the same way, that he may still be completely forgiven and straight to paradise. So you have that between the scholars on the issue. Another topic here the Sheikh mentions, لماذا نكفر تارك الصلاة ولا نكفر تارك الزكاة Why do we declare the one who abandons the prayer to be a kafir? But we don't declare the one who abandons the zakat to be a kafir. The answer, Imam Ahmad Mentioned in one of the narrations from him, كُلُّ أَرْكَانِ الْإِسْلَامِ الْخَمْسَةِ مَنْ تَرَكَهَا فَهُوَ كَافِرٌ There is a statement of Imam Ahmed, a statement from amongst his statements, where he said that any of the five pillars of Islam, anybody who abandons them is a kafir. Anybody who abandons any of the five pillars of Islam is a kafir. That is a narration from Imam Ahmad. He has other narrations that don't indicate that, but that is a narration. Upon this narration then, a person who abandons the zakat is a kafir, just like the one who abandons the prayer. They're all pillars of Islam. In that case, the one who even abandons the fasting is a kafir, the one who abandons the hajj is a kafir. And remember, we're not talking about somebody who rejects the obligation. Somebody who rejects these pillars of Islam straight away by agreement of the scholars, he is a kafir. Anybody who rejects these pillars. This is all about somebody who accepts these pillars, but simply doesn't follow them through and doesn't practice them, laziness, whatever. One statement of Imam Ahmad is, well, in that case, anybody who abandons any of the pillars of Islam, kafir. According to that, fasting, zakat, hajj, prayer, any of them. Because Islam is built upon not just one of those pillars, all five of those pillars, they are the usus, they are the foundations together. So if any one of those pillars is gone, then the building on top collapses. If any one of those five pillars collapses, then the building collapses in that direction, falls. So that is an opinion. But the correct opinion is that only the one who abandons the prayer is declared a kafir, not the other three pillars. The one who abandons the shahada, he's a mushrik anyway, that's gone. But the one who abandons fasting, hajj, and zakat is not declared a kafir if he abandons them out of laziness, out of miserliness, out of other reasons. 
And that is just like Abdullah ibn Shaqiq al-Uqayli Thiqah. He said, يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ تَارِكَ الزَّكَاءِ لَا يُكَفَّرْ أو على أن مانع الزكاة لا يكفر قول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في صاحب الفضة الذي لا يؤدي زكاتها فيحمى عليه في نار جهنم قال ثم يرى سبيله إما إلى الجنة وإما إلى النار وهذا يدل على أنه ليس بكافر لأنه لو كان كافرا لم يكن له سبيل إلى There is an evidence to indicate that the one who does not give the zakat out of miserliness or whatever is not deemed a kafir like the one who abandons the prayer. The one who abandons the zakat not considered a kafir like the one who abandons the prayer. Because there is a narration where the Prophet said about the one who had Al-Fiddah, silver. And he did not give the zakat that was due upon that silver. So then it is mentioned in the narration that in the end he will see his pathway to paradise or hell. In the end that person will see his pathway to paradise or hell. If this person who abandoned giving the zakat was therefore an outright kafir, there would be no question of him ever seeing a pathway to paradise. The fact that the Prophet ﷺ mentions that as a possibility indicates he is still Muslim and that pathway to paradise is still there. If he became a kafir with this act, then he would only see one pathway, the pathway to hell and that's it. Kafir, out of the fold of Islam, no question of the pathway to paradise. So the fact that there is a pathway to paradise or hell mentioned, both are mentioned, indicates he must be Muslim to be able to have the option of the pathway to paradise still there. That is the end of that chapter on that issue of abandoning the prayer and abandoning the zakat. There's a question that always comes up every year, so we'll premeditate the question. A couple of months early yet, but in Ramadan time, the question always comes up about zakat and about gold and about silver. So, do you have to give zakat on gold and silver? That part isn't the trick. Absolutely, you have to give zakat on gold and silver. If it's jewelry, that's a different issue. Gold and silver, just gold and silver, it's just like cash. It gives a cut on it. Jewelry is more of a disputed issue if the jewelry is in usage. A woman has jewelry that she uses. Jewelry that she wears. Every now and again, here and there, wherever, that jewelry is being used and worn. It's not something that is being kept as goods for profit, for sale later on. You're waiting for the prices to go up and you're going to sell, that's it. It's not there for that type of purpose. That jewelry is there because the woman actually uses it and wears it. 
So now do you have to give zakat on that or not? Jewelry that a woman is using. It's used. Not every day maybe, but it's used. Utilized. It's not stocked away, stored away, just waiting for the prices and you can sell it. It's not like it's stock. It is utilized your every day, every week, whenever it is, you use that jewelry. Zakat on it or not? No. There is a major difference of opinion on that topic. There is a difference of opinion whether you have to give zakat on jewelry that is used, that is worn or not. Let's assume the opinion that you do have to give zakat upon that jewelry. So now, how do you give zakat upon the jewelry? Who is it due upon? The husband or the wife? Upon the husband? The husbands will be relieved to know that the jewelry that is owned by the woman, it's her jewelry, it's her property, the zakat is due on her. But it does not necessitate she is the one who has to pay. The husband can pay that zakat. The husband can pay that zakat. It doesn't mean the woman has to pay it. But it's due upon her. It's her property. That gold is hers. Her property, her money, that's her wealth. So it's due upon her. The husband can pay it or the father can pay it. She's not married. That can all be done. No problem in that. But it's due technically upon her. It's her wealth. Her jewelry, her gold, her wealth. But let's say now this particular woman has 5,000 pounds of jewelry but has no cash. Her husband goes out and works. He takes care of all of the affairs, the food, the bills, everything. She doesn't need a bank account with any money in it. She doesn't have access to any cash like that, her own cash. Husband takes care of everything, all of the affairs. But she's got this 5,000 pounds of jewelry that she got when she got married. You know how it is. (laughs) So then, now the zakat is due, what's she going to do? She has nothing in her bank account. She doesn't have a bank account even maybe. 5,000 pounds worth of jewelry. She's got to give zakat on it. How's she going to give it? She asks the husband. The husband gets, I don't know. It's your jewelry, your your money. You should sort it out. So what's she going to do? Sell some of the jewelry to be able to pay the proportion of the zakat due. If... It got to that situation and the husband isn't able. Maybe sometimes the husband genuinely isn't able, possibly. Or maybe there are other reasons. But whatever. If it got to that situation, then yes. If it got to that situation, then yes. The woman would have to sell a section of her jewelry or just give the relevant amount of jewelry that works out as the amount that she has to give of the zakat. Maybe from all of that 5,000 pounds worth, she works out that one pair of earrings is the amount that would be required as the zakat of this 5,000 pounds worth of jewelry. So she can just give those earrings and that's it, done. Or she could sell a section of her jewelry, 
Maybe it can't be broken up like that. One band, bracelet, some diamonds or something, or some gold pieces off it. So she can sell some of those to get the amount required to give the proportion of the 5,000 pounds worth of jewelry that needs to be given. Then you would have to do that. If it got to that, it would rarely get to that. The husband would typically sort out this affair. The one who has the ability, then if the wife doesn't have cash, uh, that would normally be taken care of. But if it got to that scenario, then yes, the woman has to do something with that jewelry to get that portion out that needs to be given for the zakat. If what? If inherited? Once you've inherited, your section of your inheritance is yours. That's your right now. That is your possession, that is your property now. So that, that's what you must deal with in terms of the zakat yourself now. But like we said, it doesn't require the wife to do it. The husband can do it. No, no, the zakat items, the zakat items, we're not going to start discussing zakat items, but it doesn't mean it's on everything you own. Maybe we'll do that as a topic one day. It takes a while. It's not on everything. If you own a house now, there's no zakat on your house. Unless you own a house which is for business purposes. Generally business purposes. So you put, you, maybe you're, uh, you're putting it out in rent, for example. Then in that case, the zakat would be due on the rent that you take in from that property, the, the, the profit you're making on the property, that type of thing. But it's not in everything you own, not on your car that you own. Anyway, the rent, yeah, so it's not on the, the house, it's on the rental income, the, the profit that you are making from that. And that would apply to other things, like we just said, your car, you don't have to give zakat on it. But if your car happens to be a taxi, and you're now making an income, that income you're going to give zakat on it. But that, uh, you have to do the chapter of zakat, to go through all the various forms, because there are many things in the UK, in the West, all we generally really think about is just cash. Cash that you have, wealth that you have, businesses and money you're making. Nobody thinks about cows and sheep and camels and everything else, and the proportions you have to give from those things, from the crops and the vegetations you're growing, all of those, they come into the chapter of zakat. But maybe, maybe one day, inshallah ta'ala, uh, that can be done. We'll round off on that for tonight then, unless there's anything else. If you've lost track, then it's a sin. It's a sin if you've lost track. It means you haven't been paying your zakat, and now you've lost track of what's going on. It's a sin. So you need to repent as the first thing. Then on top of that, you just have to make a judgment of what was there in the previous years. Make a judgment to the best case scenario, or meaning the worst case scenario, the maximum it would have been worked out on those years, and you give it. With salaries, people always ask about salaries. I've got a monthly salary. So how do I work out what I've had for a year at the end of the year? Some salaries, they only came in 11 months ago. My other one came in 10 months ago. The other one came in 9 months ago. So those salaries, the last 11 salaries, do I not count them in the zakat? Because you have to have that wealth for a year. With salaries, the scholars say, you don't do that type of math maths on it. 
With salaries, it's not like that. If you're getting a monthly salary, they say, you just look at what's there in your account every year and you give the zakat on it. Because eventually, all of those salaries are adding up to a year. So you just look at what you have and you just give the zakat and it's simple as that. You don't need to start working out my monthly salary, which ones have I had for a year, which ones not. You can just give it on that amount you have and it's done. There is no other maths you need to work out on monthly salaries. Uh, Shaykh Al-Thameen mentioned that. Simplest form, you have your bank account, you have your wealth. Once you're adding up those salaries when you start working and it hits the point of the nisab, then you wait a year and from that point onwards, from that point onwards, every year you just give it on what you have. And you don't have to look at salaries and months and everything else after that. So we'll round it off on that for now then. Carry on next week, inshallah ta'ala. Isha's eight o'clock. So straight after Isha next week, inshallah.